This is how to teach, and um, what I'd like to do is to start with a little passage of Scripture and pray us into this, and then we'll jump in. This is one of the uh, strophes of Psalm 119. It seems particularly apropos to this subject. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray together. We are grateful, Lord, for uh, just a few Wednesday nights to set aside some time to consider teaching. And as we do this, I pray that uh, the effect of it will be as the psalmist uh, who says that he loves your word and he wants to be near what you have communicated. Uh, thank you that when you sent your son, you sent him as a teacher and a preacher. And we want to learn from him. And we want to learn from each other. Pray that you'll grant that for us tonight and each night that we come together and meet in this place this way and that the fruit of this, not only in our church but beyond our church, will be, as uh, Prof. Hendricks wrote in his book, that um, the passion to communicate uh, results in people's lives being the better, uh, changed more toward the image of, of who Christ is and what you want for us. So we, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me turn on my recording here. The first thing I want to say about how to teach, right out of the gate I want to say this, is that the title of this uh, seems really presumptuous. Uh, as if I consider myself the measure of a good teacher, or I know where all the gems are hidden, and I don't. I'm primarily a preacher. Preaching differs from teaching in a few ways that I'll sprinkle this with as we go. Uh, but I don't consider myself any kind of master teacher. I've had some training. I've had some experience. I have a lot of admiration for those I do consider to be master teachers. And I'll speak from all of that in an attempt to be helpful. But no one is exhaustive with this subject. And we're only taking uh, really three nights for me to convey this way and then one night for you uh, to convey as well. And so I, I don't have a lot of expertise for you to download here. I have taught preaching at the seminary level but I have not taught teaching process. So you're, you're getting the, either way you look at it, the benefit or <laughs> the non-benefit of this being the first time out of the gate with this subject. So everything I've prepared for this is fresh to this particular, um, this particular elective at this particular time. And I'll take it from here and refine it and hone it. And I welcome your feedback for that uh, as we go with this because I'd like it to to be useful again. So let me make that disclaimer at the beginning that how to teach uh, does not broadcast 
uh, any particular uh, ability or um, that I think that I, I have a corner on this, I am still learning. And again, I'm primarily a preacher. And um, as I said, I'll, I'll throw in here and there ways I think preaching and teaching are a little different. Um, not all preachers should try to teach. And uh, probably most teachers should try not to preach when they're, uh, when they're that's, that's the way we'll work that. Uh, here's what I want to do with these four Wednesday nights. I'll give you where we're going here at the beginning. Tonight is uh, mainly uh, definitional and descriptive. Tonight, uh, and I mean definition slash description of what teaching is, and I'll give you uh, a, a simple definition Simple description that has three component parts, and tonight we'll just take those components and we'll talk about them. I'll utilize a couple of movie clips, which I really never do, um, but I'll do that tonight because these particularly are apropos for our subject. And then next week, we're going to get into what I call uh, stickability. How does what you're teaching stick with people? And I'll give you communication principles for effective teaching. And so next week is a lot more nuts and bolts as to um, techniques and mechanics and preparation, what goes into that. Uh, we're all not going to do that the same way, but there are certain proven ways of communicating that I want to commend to you. And so next week we'll talk about that. And then the third week, I want to discuss Hendrick's book. So you've got a couple of weeks to finish this. It's not a hard book to read. And if you haven't gotten a copy, go ahead and get a copy, because the third night, I'll guide our discussion, but I want us to talk about the book, and we'll save a, a, a period for that. So the third night, we'll be talking about this book, be prepared for that. And then the fourth night, again, that's October 17th, not the 10th, I'll turn it over to you. Between now and then, uh, you'll develop a, a three-minute lesson. I said two, it's actually got about two to three minutes in there. Three is the max, and I'll help you prepare that. In fact, I'll give you next week what you'll need to be able to put that together. And really what we're looking for in that time is um, the things that we'll talk about next week being in effect and the things that Hendricks talks about. And some of you, that probably scares you to death. Uh, don't be scared by it. It's two to three minutes. You can say a lot in that time, more than you think you can. Uh, but you can also focus on one or two things in that time and, and really do well with that. So that, that's just to give you the experience. Um, if you really can't do that, I'm not going to make you do it, but hopefully everybody will take us up on that, and then we'll all just kind of get to hear from each other and see how this has hit us. <clears throat> so that's four. That's four times. That's all we've got. And maybe someday we'll make this a little longer, but out of the gate I think four times is sufficient. Just so you know how this came about, why we're offering this particular elective, uh, the session elders from time to time will express concern over teaching in the church. That's part of their oversight as uh, spiritual leaders of the church. But the concern really gets into, when you look at our adult classes, do we have enough teachers? Uh, the teachers that we have, do we know they're teaching sound doctrine? Uh, and are they, um, are they trained? Do they, do they ever, ever have any opportunity for sharpening and, and being tooled and being resourced? And so uh, I was really asked 
by the, the session this time around if I would consider doing this really through the kitchen cabinet, uh, which is the executive committee uh, of the session with also some deacons. But um, a lot of times a class here, I'm talking about adult classes, will be without a teacher or in between teachers. And then sometimes some of those classes have felt a scramble to who can teach us? Most of our classes have a teacher. And so um, I don't think we, for now, we don't keep any master list. One is in the works, as I understand it, of who can teach, who classes can call on. But what this is uh, uh, about is a chance for existing teachers, as well as uh, those who might want to teach, and also the merely curious. If you're here and you're just curious, you know, I'm just interested in what this subject might be about. You might be uh, coming from the teaching profession. Some of you are are teachers by vocation. Uh, We're just going to look at what goes into teaching, and if this is a refresher for you, you can brush up, you can uh, knock the barnacles off the bow of the boat, uh, you can hopefully pick up some things that will be helpful for you, whether you teach an adult class here, or uh, you lead a men's group or a women's group, or you teach in children's ministry. We'll talk a little bit next week about audience and how you uh, style things. It's painful to watch people get up in front of children and try to give them a lesson they would give to adults. Painful to watch that. Don't do that. <laughs> With kids, it's got to be on their level. It's got to heavy in stories and pictures. And, and uh, you know, but I've, I've watched people try to give children concepts, you know, and it's just, it, it, like I say, it's just painful to watch that. So we'll talk about that again next week. We'll get into some of those mechanics. Tonight, definitional description, going to give you a simple definition, and then we'll try to unpack it. A lot of definitions for what teaching is. If this was a seminar, if this was a survey class, if I was teaching this for course credit at a school, I would be obligated to give you a survey of all the uh, major teaching definitions that are out there, but as I'm not obligated to do that, uh, what I'm going to do is just focus on one. This is one that works for me. It's not unique to me, but if, um, if I had to define teaching, uh, this is the way I define it. I've called this definition from sources. It's, uh, again, this is... Uh, not unique to me, but this is what I'll go with. I'm going to define teaching, uh, that teaching is caring about the explanation you are giving. That's purposefully broad. I want to have a big barn here to start before we get into details and particulars, but teaching is caring about the explanation that you are giving. Now, this definition, and it's really more of a description of teaching, does not say a lot. It says a little. But the little it says, we can work with, and we can expand each of these words. Each of these words hold air. And so we're going to look at giving, we're going to look at explanation, and we're going to look at uh, caring, and that's in reverse order. Look at caring first, then explanation, then giving But this description, it doesn't say anything about whether we're connecting with the learner. I'll refer to the person we're teaching as the learner rather than the student just because we're in different contexts. 
says nothing about whether we're engaged with the learner, whether we're connecting with the learner. That's important. We need to connect. Uh, connection with the learner is really huge if teaching is happening. But in this description, as I'm giving it to you, you do hear that teaching does involve explanation. And uh, by that, I don't mean an information download or uh, an information dump where you just give people facts in succession and hope they string them together, but explaining something. And with an explanation, there is uh, sometimes demonstration, depending on the subject. You may need to demonstrate. Uh, you may need to be more detailed in some explanations and more general in others. That's a matter of, uh, of teaching discernment. You may need to justify certain explanations. You may teach a subject to a hostile audience, as it were, audience that doesn't share your convictions. Now, in the church, most of the time, we take it for granted that everybody is on the same page. But occasionally, you'll come across subjects where there is a divergence of opinion within evangelical Christian community. And somebody may not like, take, I'll just take this as firsthand experience, somebody may not like what you're saying. And they may feel that, you know, you're, you're off in left field. And they're playing right field with this. So that happens. However, uh, these three component parts, teaching is caring, explanation, and giving. It's caring about the explanation that you're giving. Let's look at each one of these in one, two, three format. First, caring. Teaching is caring about the explanation you're giving. By caring, I mean that you want your learners to learn. You're not just filling the air with words. You're not just filling a slot. Let's uh, just put this in the common context of Sunday morning in a Sunday school class, and it's been a long week, and you come to Saturday night, and you think, oh my gosh, I am on tomorrow, aren't I? And you sit down with the ball game, you know, and you try to figure out what am I going to do to fill this time tomorrow? Probably the best thing you can do in that moment, rather than just winging it, is just say, you know what, we're going to spend some time praying in this class. And you just yield your time uh, to prayer, and that would be time well spent. But by caring, we mean we want the learners to learn. I'll come back to this thought, but the, um, the teacher hasn't taught unless the learner has learned. Now, you hear that and you instantly think, well, that, that doesn't sound fair. We'll come back to that. You're not um, filling up the time. You're seeking to impart something. And Prof. Hendricks will say you cannot impart what you do not possess. That's one of his great uh, statements that he, that he made over and over again. It's in this book in the first chapter. Uh, you want people to pick up what you're laying down. If you think of teaching as like laying a track, the way that uh, rail track, think of the old days. You had the crew out there, and they lay the beams and the posts, and then they lay the, the rail on it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a process, but it goes in a certain direction. You're laying track. You want them to pick up what you're laying down. You want them to understand. You want them to get it. That's all on the teacher. Now, again, I said we'd come back to this. The teacher hasn't taught unless the learner has learned. At one angle, that does sound unfair. If you say, well, uh, you know, the the learner has some responsibility here, doesn't he? I mean, he's got to 
think. He's got to stay awake and alert. He's got to process. He's got to reflect. He's got to study, as the case may be, if you're teaching in an academic context. But the greater onus is on the teacher to do everything within our power, everything within reason to help the learner out. And so that's why we say the teacher hasn't taught what teaching is if the learner um, hasn't learned. It's a good principle. Now, um, the learner brings with him or her all sorts of resistances to learning. And a lot of times they're not even aware of the resistances they have. And it can be something as um, inane as you've got a color on that washes out your face and the fashion nista in your class just can't get past that. Uh, it could be that they are weighed down with the distractions and cares of a week. It could be that you used um, an illustration and you weren't very sensitive and uh, the thing you laughed about is the thing they care about. I've been there and done that. It can be a lot of things, but the learner brings with him all sorts of resistances to learning. And the teacher has to be aware that there are resistances in the room. You've got to know that. Everybody's for you, in a sense, in that they want this to be interesting. They want to be able to go away and say, that was good, I like that, I got something from that. But they also are unaware of a lot of resistances that they have. And the teacher has to be dialed into that. Now, let me give you a, a movie clip that I think brings this out uh, beautifully. This is from Dead Poets Society. Why do we love that scene? Brought to life poetry. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Kid changes. Yep. Yeah. But in that scene, what do we love about what do we love about that? Yeah. Would you have liked to have had a teacher like that in school? Spencer mentioned the rest of the movie. Robin Williams' character gets in trouble, if you've not seen the movie, for um, it's a prim and proper boys' school. He's... He's an outlier. He's outside the pale of orthodoxy. And at the very end, um, he's being fired. And as he leaves, the headmaster has taken over the poetry class. And he wants them to recite from a book. And uh, is really going about it in all the ways that Robin Williams taught them, character taught them not to go about poetry. Mainly it's words on a page that we analyze and evaluate and maybe discover meaning for ourselves in, not something you live and breathe and feel and, and, it, and it pulls out of you things that you, that you feel and need to express. We love that scene because uh, we see a caring teacher 
We see a teacher who cares about his subject. Now, that's, that's movie, and it's, it's a script, and we all know that. But you watch that. At least I watch that. I'll just speak for myself and Spencer. And we watch that, and we see, boy, you know, that, that draws me in. I love seeing somebody come to life. Poetry, not just words on a page, but something that moves you. It pulls from us as, as well as uh, pulling us in. What are the biblical psalms? Uh, wouldn't you love to see the psalms preached like that, taught like that? The, the biblical psalms are poetry inspired by God. Is it best to teach psalms? I've been in classes where people have taught psalms by, bless their hearts, picking words out of lines, and we just go through this really mechanical state. And there's emotion in the psalm. There's feeling in this psalm. I mean, I've, I've watched people uh, teach what are called imprecatory psalms, the psalms where you... Uh, you call down wrath of God on your enemies and people spend half their time apologizing for the psalmist doing that rather than trying to enter into the life of people who have at times wanted to pray imprecatory psalms and still do. Heck, I can pray one in traffic. <laughs> Get that guy. Make him hit the median. You know. Um, there's a place to pick something apart line by line. But a psalm you immerse yourself in. And that's, that's something you got to remember when you teach it. If you're going to teach psalms, the best approach is probably with a Sunday school class not to say, this word means this. I looked up this word and they did a comparison with the, uh, you know, there was a Ugaritic word back in the time the Babylonians used. And now, it's not, I'm not saying you can't put that detail in. But it better come within a drivetrain of we're into this psalm. That better come as an insight. Hey, by the way, did you know there's a Ugaritic word? I know you don't know Ugaritic, but there's a word that means this. And that's how the Babylonians would have understood that psalm. And now people are going, wow, <laughs> wow that's fantastic. You know, It's got to be an engagement with the heart, not just the mind. And this is why mind and Scripture are actually on the same plane in Scripture. So, um, there's a great line from a French author. I can't pronounce the guy's name, so I'll just say it's a French author. And uh, I can show you where I got this if you want to see it, but here's his line. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Isn't that beautiful? If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And that's what you see in that clip from Dead Poets Society, is longing. That kid has longings inside of him that he does not know how to get out. He does not express. And the teacher has an inkling... That, uh, that that's all bound up in him. And in, and in Robert or uh, Robin Williams' case, 
He's going to get there by poetry. That's his tool. That's what he teaches. He's a poetry teacher. He's an English teacher. That's what he uses. He's got the poet's pictures up on the classroom board. Those are his saints. Those are his apostles. And so uh, that's a powerful moment where that kid realizes Walt Whitman can help me express by this, this seemingly, you, you read the poem and his barbaric yawp. And you go, what in the world is this guy smoking out in the wilds of Montana when he's writing this? My barbaric yawp, is there anything meaningful in that? And you see that something can be meaningful in that. Scripture has these places where people often get lost and they say, boy, I don't get that. I don't understand that. What's God doing here? And a good teacher helps you get into the emotion of a text in order to help you pull out of yourself what's going on in you because you're in a relationship with God. It's not this static, we just sit, he's over there, I'm over here, we're all good. It's a relationship. All right. Caring. Teaching is caring about the explanation that you're giving. Uh, another illustration on this. My youngest son, Colson, has been taking uh, drum lessons about 18 months now. We go to the world-famous Memphis Drum Shop down on Cooper Young. Every, most every Saturday, we have a, a standing appointment there with his teacher, a master drummer named Ben White. Ben has probably forgotten more drum fills than <laughs> most drummers know. He's a studio-quality percussionist. It's a real privilege for Colson to take lessons from, from this guy. What I like about Ben is not just his expertise, that he's teaching my son how to play the drums well, how to read music uh, and play the drums, which is a great uh, thing to know. But I like that Ben cares. For 18 months, we've been going there, 30-minute session, lesson, and every time he comes out with Colson and takes the time to explain to me what he's just covered with Colson, what Colson will need to work on that next week, and how he thinks Colson is doing, and how I can encourage him as somebody who doesn't know music. How can I encourage my son to practice and to learn and to do what Ben needs him to do so that the next week's 30 minutes is well utilized? Learning a musical instrument takes a lot of time and repetition. Some of you are musicians, you know that. Much of the time, Ben says, Colson just needs to do what we've been doing. I think he's a week or two away, and then we will go to the next sheet of music. And that's been the approach for 18 months. Ben makes his care obvious in coming out with Colson after the lesson to tell me about it. And in Ben's mind, it actually wouldn't be enough just to explain to Colson in the drum studio how to play. He's also got to care about Colson's playing at home, because if that doesn't happen, and he can, have, he can tell the weeks Colson hasn't practiced. He'll come out and he'll say, a lot of football this week. Huh? Yeah, say, yeah, well, we've, we've tried, you know, or we were gone this week. And he'll say, yeah, well, let's just keep doing the same thing. Just he needs to keep doing the same bars and then the next week, you know, and I'll kind of get on Colson. Hey, hey, dude, come on. You know, this is, this is expensive. Let's get this, get this going, you know. Do you like drums? Yes, sir, I want to play. Do you want me to take the drums? No, I want to play, you know. Um, 
And so uh, he, he gets there, and, and he makes progressions. But he's got to care. Ben's got to care about Colson's playing at home, or there's a quality lacking in Ben's teaching. And I appreciate that about Ben, because Ben shows that, the way he cares about what Colson's doing. Caring that a student picks up what you're putting down. Here's another dramatization of caring, teaching, that seeks to connect. This is another movie clip. This one is a little more, uh, you know, I, I get it. It's kind of sappy. Uh, but I think it makes the overarching point. At least I hope it does. This is from Mr. Holland's opus. What I like about that scene is, uh, is the connection that happens. When the, when the learner gets it and realizes, oh, this is, this is how this is supposed to go. You can even see in the way she moves at the end that she's finally hearing her clarinet give her the sound that she's wanted it to give her. And she just had to get over that note. And Mr. Holland realized for one lousy note, this girl was going to kill her clarinet. Just one note she couldn't get over. She couldn't play the one note. <laughs> and she was going to quit the whole thing. And so that's the perception, modeling the perception of a teacher. Again, these are movie clips. Um, they're very well done, but they do, they do follow a pattern. A lot of our people, even in a Sunday school class, are very anxious. They're anxious about their relationship with God. They're anxious about their family. Uh, they know a lot of things. They've already got a lot of knowledge. A good teacher, particularly in a church like this one where people already know the truth, um, helps them connect it. How does this actually make a difference in the life that I'm living day in and day out? How does this truth uh, connect? How does, it, how does it build? What is it? What kind of flooring is it that I'm supposed to be walking on, standing on? That takes us to explanation. Teaching is caring about the explanation that you're giving. There is in teaching of any kind, almost inescapably, an explanation of something you as the teacher have hopefully internalized. If it's a skill, you know how to do the skill. You know how to impart that understanding. If it's biblical content, you've taken that to heart. I mentioned earlier that explanation is never an information download. It's not just dumping information on people and hoping they can make the connections. Explanation might need to begin with a demonstration, depending on the subject. Certainly music or learning a position in sports uh, requires uh, a, a demonstration along with explanation. When I was in college, I decided I wanted to learn how to fly airplanes. I kind of always had that, that yearning to be a pilot and um, began to research it and realized I could learn in my college town there. And my dad uh, talked to him about it, and he said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll co-sign your loan. That'll establish your credit, and that'll be a good thing. And I took out a loan for the lessons. The guy I hired to teach me at the Muscle Shoals Regional Airport that Ken and I know so well, his teaching process was to take you up in the air from day one. It was very uh, seat-of-the-pants no ground school. It was air school. We're going up in the plane, and we're going to figure it out as we go. And I remember that first lesson. 
I still remember lifting. I still remember the sun in my eyes, and I didn't have sunglasses. And I was queasy, and I was sweating. I was scared to death. I was, he was in the plane with me, but uh, I had the headphones on, and I'd only been in a small plane once before. A man in my church in my hometown had a little uh, plane he'd restored, and it was one of those, you sat behind him, and he took me up one day when I was in high school, and that was a thrill, but I about lost my lunch. Uh, you know, those little planes, you feel every bump. And through the crackling headphones, which I cannot hear the guy very well, if you've ever been in a little plane, it's very loud. The motor is right there, and it's full bore, and I'm trying to listen to him, and he's got my hands on the wheel and my feet on the pedals, and he's telling me I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and the next lesson, we're going to, we're going to roll the plane, we're going to do uh, some stalls, and I'm wondering, do I really want to do this? I don't think I do. You know, I'm up there in the air figuring all this out at 1,500 feet. Before my next lesson, he called and he said, hey, I'm moving to Pennsylvania. Very sudden, just out of the blue. <laughs> there we go. Lessons are over. So I had my first and last <laughs> flight lesson simultaneously. Decided I really didn't want to do that after all. Gave the money back to the bank, which got a great credit rating out of that. I paid a loan back in two weeks. Um, and that was that. Now, later on, I was talking with one of the professors at college. You ever know Dr. Rico? He's an advertising marketing prof there. This is at North Alabama. Well, I, he, was, he was there long, so I don't know if he'd been there. Maybe he might have been an entry professor when you were there. But he... Um, he was a guy that used to talk to his classes about uh, his love of flying. And he, he would have uh, uh, all these illustrations would be about flying. So one day after class, I had him for an advertising class. I went up and said, uh, Dr. Rico, I, I learned, I, I was trying to learn to fly and uh, told him about the experience. And I remember him just shaking his head as I told him. He just looked down. He just kept shaking his head. And he said, you know, that guy didn't serve you at all. He said, when I teach students how to fly, we do months of ground school. And we do months of looking at the airplane and knowing the instrument panel and knowing everything about that plane before you ever leave the wheels off the ground. He was very aggravated by seat-of-the-pants kinds of instructors. And he said, if I had been teaching you to fly, you'd be flying today because you'd have all your ground school and then you would have your hours in the plane and that would be the very best approach. He was essentially telling me to fly an airplane safely, you've got to have a lot of explanation. And it doesn't do to try to explain it to you when you're scared to death up above town. That's not the time to try to explain because you're nervous and, you, and, and that, ner those anx that anxiety is blocking your receptors and you can't, you can't process when you're scared to death. And he said it was totally the wrong way to teach somebody how to fly. And I knew he was right. His telling me that instantly registered with the, the misgivings that I had felt about this arrangement with this instructor that I think looking back, maybe the Lord just moved on so the guy wouldn't kill me and I could be here today. But I, um, uh, I was too nervous to learn in the moment. And so explanation, um, it's often helped by demonstration. Uh, a demonstration that doesn't, to, to analogize this, doesn't get people up in the air before they know what's going on on the ground. And so, um, back to the drum shop. 
when Colson had his first lesson, I knew that he needed to see what was possible. He was 10 years old. And uh, first lesson, I went to the little soundproof room they go to. Colson and Ben, I wanted to see Ben's approach. I want to make sure Ben was okay. And you walk into the soundproof room, and there's this beautiful drum set. And I could see my little boy, you know, oh boy. And he thought, man, this is going to be cool. I'm going to... Colson's game's in 15 minutes. So I didn't, I didn't purposely have that up there. It's just my calendar does that, as yours does. So I, um, he saw the drum set, and, um, and, but where do you start? You start on the drum pad. So we get into the room. Ben brings out the drum pad, and it's just this round thing with sticks, and he begins to tell Colson about the dexterity he's going to need and the, and the hand muscle memory, he's gonna, his hands are going to have to, he's going to get calluses in his hand. He starts describing that for him. And your, your muscles, you're going to feel it right here in your hands at first as you play, but you keep playing. You play through that. If you're playing the guitar, your fingers would, would hurt here. If you're playing a horn, your lips would hurt. And, your, and, and so all that, he's learning. Well, I knew that Colson had gone to the drum lessons thinking that we were going to play a drum set. I knew that he walked in there at 10 thinking, this is going to be cool. He walked in the stores like, whoa. I'm going to do this. And, uh, but no, just the drum pad. And I could see the disappointment. I could see that uh, he thought this is going to be boring. And it is pretty tedious to learn on the drum pad. And you do that for about three months. You stay on that drum pad. So in order to show Colson what was possible if he could play the drums, I didn't arrange this with Ben ahead of time. He was just good to do it in the moment. At the end of the lesson... Ben said, okay, and he was getting up to leave, and I said, Ben, would you mind demonstrating for us drum play? Would you play something? Oh, sure, you know, and this studio musician gets on that drum set, and it was filthy, as they say, uh, those uh, who speak the lingo. Um, that means that dude was like Alex Van Halen in a concert. I mean, he played the mess out of those drums. And it was cool. And Colson's face is like, wow, my teacher is a dude on the drums. It was incredible. Um, Colson needed to see that because all of Ben's explanations that would follow were at times going to be tedious and at times were going to be very careful and at times that drum pad was going to look, oh gosh, I don't think I want to do this. But he had to see what was possible. And if he could see what was possible, we had a better shot of Colson staying with the instrument. Explanation needs to give a sense of what's possible. And when you parlay this into biblical teaching, you don't want to spend all your time talking about what was or even what is. You also want to give people a, a sense of, of how, this, how you're going to be different if this instruction gets into you. If, if this sinks, if this penny drops, if this... If this uh, if this nut or this bolt drills down in you, how, how is this going to be different? And you do that in a, in, a, in a classroom with any subject. But if you get this biblical truth, just putting it in our context of the church, what might that mean for your relationship to God and others? A lot of biblical teaching is telling over showing. It is. Just by the nature of it, we're standing in front of people and we're telling them. But there are ways to pique interest. 
And there are ways to aid people's comprehension. We'll talk about this next week with stickability. I'll give you some sticky um, principles for communication and some things that help. Analogies and stories. Uh, when you can paint pictures, uh, you can go too far with that and go too far with anything. But uh, you, you, repetition. This helps people to get. Don't try to give them nine things. Here's nine ways to have. Try to give them two things. Try to give them three things. Develop those things over and over. And your teaching begins to stick with people uh, better usually in that case. So we'll talk about that more next week. Third component in my uh, working description is giving. Teaching is caring about the explanation that you are giving. People are giving you their time and attention in listening to you teach. You've got to give them something back for that. They've, you've got to do that. You've got to give them something for their time and attention. And you've got to give them something that they can actually use. Something that will aid their growth. Something that betters them for the experience of your teaching them. When we taught Philippians, when I taught Philippians here preaching, I used the story of Pablo Casal. Some of you remember this story. Pablo Casal is a Spanish cellist, world-renowned cello player. In his 90s, he was still practicing the cello four to five hours a day. Nobody's making him do that, and he didn't have to do that by way of all the invitations he got. He could play anywhere in the world, with anyone in the world. And when Pablo Casals was asked why, direct quote, why do you practice it in your 90s at four to five hours a day when you're already world-renowned? He said, because I have the impression I am making progress. <laughs> and I love that. And we called Philippians that, the impression of progress. Now, that can sound like false modesty. 90-year-old guy, come on. You're, you're, you are Mr. Cello in the world. What do you mean you have the impression you're making progress? I think um, his work ethic said that he had such great respect for the instrument in his care that he didn't want to do anything to fail that instrument. Because if he failed his instrument, he failed the people that were there uh, to listen to him play. And, and it was music that people want to hear. Don't underestimate this part of things. Music people want to hear. Likewise, teaching that people want to hear. I have, as you have, have sat under bland teaching, boring teaching, dull teaching. Uh, I've sat under teaching that has just sort of filled the time. Or the person was uh, so anxious, so nervous, or just they were, they were just moving through this very drafty kind of uh, thoughts weren't real tight and you're not really sure what's being communicated here, or they just got so into the minutia of the subject that it just becomes painful, your eyes start to glaze over, and you're not following anymore. Nobody wants to receive that. And teaching is giving. That's why it's a part of this core definition. You're giving something to people when you teach them. You are. It is legitimate for the learner to ask of any teacher, what is in this for me? That can be a very selfish question, sure. But it's legitimate for the learner to say to the teacher, what will I get from this? What's in it for me? Teaching is caring about the explanation that you're giving. Now to conclude for tonight, I want to talk about uh, gifting and competency a few thoughts on this and then we're done. The spiritual gift of teaching. Must I have that to be a teacher? The short answer is no. 
teaching, you know, is lifted, listed among the spiritual gifts in the New Testament. And so while there is a, such a person as the gifted teacher, that is the, the person that the Holy Spirit of God has given a gift to in order for the church to be edified, the purpose of spiritual gifts, through teaching. Teaching is also a skill that you can learn. Now, I would not say that just anyone can teach. But you don't have to be gifted spiritually to be a good teacher in general. I think if you're going to teach a class in a church or you're going to lead a small group, you you probably do better to have the spiritual gift of teaching. Uh, It's hard to teach regularly and not have that. But even with those, uh, in those with great aptitude, uh, still you have to work at it. It doesn't come easily, even if it comes naturally. I think there's a difference between the two. But whether it's a gifted Christian or a talented non-Christian doing, and there's some fantastic non-Christian teachers out there. You, you've heard them. I've heard them. Teaching is a skill that has to be developed and honed. That's true, really, of all spiritual gifts. If you put it in a spiritual gift category, all of them have to be developed and honed. Uh, But there are good, better, and best practices for teaching. And we'll try to get into some of those uh, in the next couple of weeks, both in uh, next week's presentation and then also talking through Hendrick's book. On this matter of gifting and to bring Hendrick's uh, into this, I remember sitting in his classes at Dallas And uh, I remember him saying, you don't have the gift of teaching if people don't have the gift of listening. (laughs) And Hendricks had a wonderful way of putting things punchy like that. Sometimes he hits you right in the ribs. But he did not mean by that that only those who consider themselves to have the spiritual gift of teaching should teach. He wasn't saying that. He didn't believe that, nor do I. What he meant is that a true teacher will succeed at communicating eventually. A true teacher will get through, past those resistances, into connection uh, with the learner. People will, will hear your teaching. If this is a skill you're developing, they'll hear you. They might not, they're not going to hear everything you say. Nobody hears everything you say, but they'll get the bulk of it. They'll get the point. They'll get the gist. And what Hendricks really spent his professional career doing was trying to ignite a, a passion for communicating well Um, as he says in his book's opening, if you've read it, and especially among those who are teaching the Bible to people. Uh, And this takes us to competency. So gifting and competency here at the end. I've discovered for me, uh, the passion of teaching really is about competency. I want to teach, in my case, I want to preach as I would want to be taught, as I would want to be preached to. I don't write a sermon that I would not want to listen to myself. I can't think of a worse thing to do to people than to um, say things to them in a 30-minute window, in my case in preaching, um, that I, I would not want to be a fellow listener. And so I write and I teach that way. And I found some things I appreciate about competent teaching. Here's what I consider competent teaching to be. It doesn't come at me. It comes to me with things to commend to me, competent teaching. Teaching that comes at me, I don't find very competent. Because teaching that comes at me is going to make me feel small. It's going to make me feel ignorant. It's going to make me um, uh, feel uh, mistaken or lost when I've been found by the Lord. Competent teaching is not going to try to solve every tension for me. 
It's going to make me mindful of what's important, and then it's going to ask me to keep thinking about this, keep reflecting on it, keep putting this into practice. The old Puritans used to tell people, pray until you pray. And they recognized in that that praying was difficult for most people. Most people don't naturally know how to pray. And the Puritans would say, pray until you pray. Practice this until you begin to realize that you're making connections with God. Competent teaching is constructively corrective. It doesn't tear down. I'm never helped by a teacher that's just blasting me and tearing me down. It's got to be constructive. I need to see, okay, if I'm wrong, how do I get to a better place? What, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? You're not going to always do that perfectly and always paint that path for somebody perfectly. But, but not all teaching needs to correct. I've, I've been around teachers who I think believe They've always got to be correcting something. They've always got to be on something. And, and I think mo- mo- much of our teaching needs to encourage, frankly. People are dying for encouragement. Competent teaching will commend the truth plainly. There's a verse about that. Without resorting to platitudes or uh, stating the obvious over and over again, which is boring. Now, sometimes we need to be technical. Uh, there is sometimes subjects that require a little bit of tedium and uh, we've got to deal with views and why do people misunderstand this? And, and even Peter said about Paul's teaching, some of it is hard to understand. Remember at the end of Second Peter, I think, is where he wrote that. But too much tedium in teaching is just dull. I don't care what passage of Scripture you're in. Another thing Prof. Hendrick used to say, uh, I wish I could do his accent. It's a crime to bore people with the Word of God. And that's what, he, that's what he would say. And I think it's equally a crime to be novel with the Word of God and to invent things or to read things into it that aren't, that aren't there. We don't want to do that either. But boring teaching, usually the hallmark of boring teaching is you're just stating the obvious. I can read this. I already know that. Don't keep telling me what I already know. Help me understand how I'm supposed to take this and connect it to something, something larger. Something larger than me. Competent teaching works at holding our interest. Uh, we'll talk about this next week with analogies and descriptions. Questions. Man, don't underestimate the value of questions. It's one of the differences, by the way, between teaching and preaching. In teaching, you can stop for questions. Preaching, you really can't do that. In preaching, it's just a drivetrain. I'm in the driver's seat, and here we go. I'm going to fly you from here to here. And that's where we'll end up, hopefully. And not everybody will make it, you know, on the flight. Some people will die in transit. Some people will check out. Some people will leave. Some people will parachute out. I've had that happen. People will get up and walk out, you know. But teaching, you stop for questions. Teaching, you say, hey, how's this hitting you? What do you think about this? Or you see somebody make a puzzled face. Don't run past that. When you see somebody kind of go, oh, you know, you're not always going to engage it. And sometimes people make puzzled faces because that's just how their face sits. That's their resting face. <laughs> just, and you learn that. Uh, but sometimes if somebody kind of tilts their head and goes, oh, you know, or they, you know they, they make sort of that pondering pose. You kind of say, hey, you seem to be having a thought there. Oh, I don't want to share, you know, and that's, that's okay. But uh, sometimes you welcome that. You call that out. You, you need to pad room in your teaching. Most of the time we over-prepare, we have too much, and we, we don't leave time to interact. 
Uh, competent teaching will anticipate questions. You'll think about what kind of questions do people have about this. Competent teaching doesn't have to be witty. It's great if you are. It's a nice touch if you're quick on your feet. But humor is a thing usually seasoned to taste, and it doesn't always connect. And so don't rely on it. Don't rely on media. Uh, media is nice if it works. Don't rely on humor. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to use it uh, to break through and get through to people. Again, it's nice if you have it. Everybody enjoys a laugh. Uh, but, but don't make humor at somebody's expense. That would be a poor thing. What competent teaching creates is trustworthiness. That's ultimately what you want to establish between a teacher and a learner is I can trust you. Uh, Stephen Covey, the guy who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said that uh, trust is the space uh, between competency and character. In other words, what he meant by that as a principle is that you can have great character, but be incompetent, and I can't trust you. You can be incompetent, or you can be competent and, and have terrible character, be a snake, and I can't trust you. If I'm going to trust you, your competency and your character have to be working together. And so as Christians who are teaching the Bible teaching spiritual truth to people. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The character part is there, watch your life. Uh, the competency part, watch your doctrine. Persist in these things, read the scriptures. He, all that stuff he told to Timothy on these lines. That's what we're trying to achieve is this, uh, is this place of trust where the learner can trust you that what you're imparting to them you A, possess and B, can demonstrate in your own life and uh, working on out from there um, it's, it, it carries them in their relationship with God uh, to being closer to Him to drawing near to Him as He draws near to us all right, you want to ask a question or two? You got anything you want to talk about? We can take time. Yes. Yes. Explanation is back here. Make sure I give it to you right. Where did I put that? That's right. It's something that you've internalized. Uh, you're explaining something, and if it's a skill, you can demonstrate the skill. If it's biblical truth, you've internalized it in your heart. And I know that part of our application for this is spiritual truth, biblical truth with people. Yeah. Confirm. Right. Yeah, no. Well, it's just that, um, it, to use Pablo Casals, there's some evident progress in your life. I mean, if, if you're going to teach the fruit of the Spirit, anybody who ever gets into that text in Galatians 5 and deals with peace, patience, kindness, self-control, realizes immediately, i got a lot of work to do. So how do I display progress? Well, I can maybe tell um, 
stories of others' progress. Um, if I've got none to say for myself, I can try to locate it in somebody else and hold them up as uh, an example to follow. I can try to create a taste for that. Why would I want to grow in self-control? What would be the benefit to me? I could take that approach. And so it becomes aspirational. We want to make progress together. And here's the areas in which this will... Why would I want to be kind? Have you seen it out there? Nobody's kind. You get, you're kind, you get run over. You know. So you may have to justify that one and spend time helping people understand why kindness matters. But the progress you want to show is that we know we're making gains. And you know when you're making gains in something. And so that's, um, you never really are, it's not about holding ourselves up as the model as much as it is, here's what I understand this to mean and why this is valuable and why this is worth your time and effort and attention to incorporate this into your life, to believe this. If you're, if you're doing something as academic as comparing two views on... Um, um, I don't know. What do you compare two views on? Election. Okay, I'll take that one. People have different... The, the wise teacher is going to realize there's some emotion involved in this. It's not just words on a page. People have felt um, things about this. But I'm going to anticipate questions that people are going to ask. And I'm going to move through that with carefulness. But I want to make sure that if the room is, is divided and the two groups are in the room, they both recognize themselves in the way I've explained. So I'm not going to caricature. Even if I want to teach one side of that and say, I think it's this, let it be that the other side says, well, you handled our view right. You said exactly what we believe. You know, that doesn't happen a lot. Sometimes in Christian teaching, we, we hoist ourselves up on the view we don't like, and we show how terrible it is. And... Um, in a way, I think that insults the intelligence of our, of our people who are listening. I think you ought to be fair to views that are within the pale of orthodoxy. Yeah. That, that's an example. Just You'd be taking a view like that. It, that's about something to believe. Now, you, now you'd want to help, help them see, well, why do I need to believe anything about this? Well, Scripture teaches it. Well, for most people, that's going to be a good enough reason. But for other people, it's going to, you're going to need to go a little step further. Well, this never comes up when I talk with my friends. Well, maybe not directly, but indirectly. It does in these ways. And you have to anticipate that question and think about that. Now you start getting into the work of teaching. A lot of the work is ahead of the time. Anticipating, how is this going to come across? When I say this, I really appreciate when people tell me, when they listen to a sermon and they say, I'm so glad you handled that. Because I know I can't handle everything in a text. I've got 30 minutes. I've got a big block of text. So I can't do everything. And the longer I've preached, the more I've, I've really tried to get it down to a few things to think about, and that's just experience and realizing how people... But if I'm, if I'm taking a position on a controversial matter, I've got people in the room who don't want to take that position, and I've got to somehow help them understand why I'm still trustworthy even though I take the position they don't like or don't, don't think is the right one. And some of that's just your manner and how you communicate. Anyone else? 
Y'all going to let me go to my game? I appreciate that. Y'all are sweet. Thank you for that.